Traditionally, the president's kids are somewhat off limits to the press. That is until they come of age. When they're adult kids, rules are different. The adult children of presidents are often covered with little mercy in the media. In recent years, the presidential kids have inflamed a lot of emotion, whether it was Don Jr. or Eric or Ivanka or Hunter. Many people love to hate one or the other, all of them, because everybody's grumpy these days. (laughs) But not so with Jonathan. We've been looking at his remarkable life. Uh, He was full of courage and godly devotion. He was so gracious and so faithful that sometimes we think he's making a terrible mistake, being too full of grace and too full of devotion. His character comes out most strikingly in his relationship with his father, King Saul. We've seen Jonathan the warrior and Jonathan the friend, and tonight we examine Jonathan the son, who stood beside Saul, stood up to Saul, stood between Saul and his enemies. As before, we're given three snapshots in 1 Samuel that show us Jonathan the son. The first is in chapter 14. Now, in our study on Jonathan the warrior, we went through that famous story of how he and his armor bearer attacked a Philistine garrison all on their own, and they won this great victory over 20 soldiers or so, and how that became a catalyst for a miraculous deliverance for Israel that day. So we went through that, but we're going to pick up that story now in the second part of verse 23. And there we read this. The battle extended beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel were worn out that day. For Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Jonathan is always presented to us in stark contrast to his father, Remember back to what Jonathan had been doing. First, he had led uh, his 1,000 troops into victory while his dad didn't do anything. And then he invited his armor bearer on this magnificent venture of faith that we love to read about. Jonathan had an unwavering trust in God's plan for Israel and power for his people. And he wasn't interested in getting glory for himself. He wanted glory for God and deliverance for God's people and the exaltation of Israel's king. And because of that, he inspired the people, his countrymen. He inspired his fellow troops. They were excited to follow after him. Now, meanwhile, what do we see? Saul does the opposite. While Jonathan was walking by faith, Saul is sitting around hoping the fight wouldn't come to him. This is one of Saul's habits. He likes to sit under trees and when, a, and when a battle formation comes up against him, he just kind of sits there and hopes someone else will take care of it. It's what he's doing here. It's what he does with Goliath. It's a habit in his life. Then, after Jonathan had won this victory over this garrison, which Saul didn't know about yet, but they looked out and they saw the vast Philistine army, which we were told was as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They see it starting to... Uh, melt away in chaos and confusion, Saul at that moment decides to take the time to call the roll so that he could figure out who dared to leave the camp without his approval. And we see there that they almost missed this great opportunity to actually get involved with what God was doing. Though Saul did eventually join the fight, here we see him disrupting the course of the battle yet again to make what your Bible might call in the heading his rash oath. No one's allowed to eat until he's had some sort of nebulous vengeance taken out on his enemies. 
It seems that he took the time to spread the word all throughout the ranks. So it's hard for us to put ourselves in, into this scene. A lot is going on. A lot of it is miraculous. A lot of it is very difficult. It is very chaotic. There's all sorts of things happening. But what we also see is Saul is saying, hey, hey everybody stop for a second. I have something to say. And he tells them, I've decided uh, that none of you can eat anything until, for the rest of the day until I say it's okay. And so uh, we know that he took the time to spread this word around because we're told that all of the troops, all of the troops didn't eat anything. It wasn't just some limited number of men that he told. He got the word out. Saul overlooks the fatigue of the men who had been fighting so hard all day. Instead, he suggests they still haven't done enough. After all, he needed to, quote, take vengeance, end quote, on his enemies. And yet it wasn't Saul who had stepped out in faith that morning against the Philistines. He practically missed the battle because of fear and ego. And now instead of helping his men, he hamstrung them. Verse 25, everyone went into the forest and there was honey on the ground. When the troops entered the forest, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any of it because they feared the oath. The interwebs taught me something about honey the other day. A healthy beehive with just the right natural conditions of flowers and blossoms and those sorts of things, they, it can make uh, 10 pounds of honey a day, which is a pretty good amount of honey, right? Even still, it's hard to imagine that this wasn't a wonderful, generous act of God's miraculous providence. After all, it was the Lord who was carrying off this chain of events that brought this victory out of nowhere. Uh, if we were going through chapter by chapter and verse by verse, we would remember that Israel at the time was completely um, broken down as far as their military was speaking. They were down to like 600 guys. There were only two swords for the entire group with them. Jonathan had one, Saul had one. A bunch of the Israelites had defected to the Philistines. A bunch of the rest had gone and hidden in caves. I mean, so, so they are just in an absolutely abysmal state, militaristically speaking. And then God, through Jonathan's act of faith, sets off this in incredible chain of miraculous victory for them. And, and it just comes out of nowhere. You know, it was surprising that a school like Baylor would defeat the undefeated Gonzaga Bulldogs for the NCAA title this year, right? I think some people were surprised about that. But that's nothing compared to Israelites versus the Philistines in this chapter. They started this battle, like I said, with only two swords. And now the strongest, most technologically advanced army in the entire region was being routed before God's people, who just hours before had been quaking in fear. Along the way, here in this forest, God supplied some battle manna for them. What a fitting snack on the road, honey. It was a tender reminder of the promises God had made so long ago that he would bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a reminder that despite their failures and despite their wanderings during the time of the judges and despite even their selfish asking for a king instead of letting God rule over them, the Lord still loved them. He was still for them. He was still giving them this land. It was their land. And they could see it right there in this provision of honey. But their king's selfish, brutish command kept them from enjoying what God had so richly provided. So very interesting situation. Verse 27, 
However, Jonathan had not heard his father make the troops swear the oath. He reached out with the end of the staff he was carrying and dipped it in the honeycomb. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Then one of the troops said, your father made the troops solemnly swear the man who eats food today is cursed and the troops are exhausted. The men here, it's clear, are in a state of anxiety and fear, not from their, their enemies, the Philistines, but from their own sovereign. We're told they were afraid back in verse 26, but here we see this coming out again. No one thinks to warn Jonathan before he takes a taste of the honey, but then once it's done, someone among the ranks musters enough courage to not only explain the situation to Jonathan, but to also voice their frustration and their concern. The troops are exhausted. So we see the way that these men felt about Jonathan. On the one hand, they're worried about their captain because they know how severe and unfair and irrational Saul can be. But they also know that even though he's the king's son, even though he's this great warrior, this great captain, he's still a kind of man that can be approached and entrusted with their struggles and frustrations. They say, hey man, we're doing our best, but we're exhausted out here. And they know that unlike Saul, Jonathan is not gonna jump on them and rebuke them and scold them and hit them across the face or anything like that. They knew what kind of man he was. Verse 29, Jonathan replied, my father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I've renewed energy because I've tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies. Then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. God wanted to give the people of Israel deliverance. He didn't want to just like help save them from the Philistines. He wanted them to conquer back this land and take back what the Lord had given them. The Philistines had infested it and, and run it over and they had taken away all of the Israelites' weapons and they were raiding all of their grain and all this different stuff. And the Lord said, hey, I want to deliver you and I just want to pile on victory for you. And instead... Saul, who's supposed to lead them in a godly way and lead them into this promise and blessing and victory that God wants for them, instead of helping them get that, Saul gave them trouble. He gave them obstacles. He, he hamstrung them. Meanwhile, we see Jonathan not only had a thoughtful heart toward the soldiers around him, he was thinking about their condition and how they needed some supply. He also had a much bigger scale mindset than his father did. He was doing the math in his head. He realizes we could have had a much greater victory if it hadn't been for this short-sighted command. At this point, many of the Israelites give in to their hunger and they start slaughtering animals to eat them without properly draining the blood out. Big no-no. Saul sees what's going on and he tells them that they're all traitors. Okay, these are his guys. You're all traitors and come here. I'm going to roll a stone. And, and he yells at everybody. He gets all upset. But it was his action that led to this result. Before they move on with the battle, Saul attempts to inquire of the Lord. He suddenly gets very spiritual in front of all of the guys. We need to inquire of the Lord. We need to do this. We need to do that. I'm going to build an altar. It's all just a big show. He's trying to cover over the fact that he's abused his troops here. And so he says, okay, well, we'll, we'll inquire of the Lord, uh, but then the Lord won't answer them. That's not good. So Saul then assumes that someone other than him must have done something to anger the Lord. And so the lots are cast to figure out what's going on. Verse 38, Saul said, 
all you leaders of the troops, come here. Let's investigate how this sin has occurred today. As surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if it is because of my son, Jonathan, he must die. Not one of the troops answered him. So he said to all Israel, you will be on one side and I and my son, Jonathan, will be on the other side. And the troops replied, do whatever you want. This is not a good sign, everybody. Leadership 101. <laughs> this, is not, this is not playing out very well. Now, we know that Saul has a completely adversarial attitude toward his men, and he's been thinking only about himself this whole time. I need to take vengeance on my enemies. Hey, man, you were just sitting under like a pomegranate tree five minutes ago. You're, you don't care about the, the Philistines and all the, I mean, you do, but you're not willing to do anything about it. Then Jonathan and other people go out and do this work and start you know, winning this victory. And you claim it for yourself. Oh, Saul's delivering you. And then he says, I got to take vengeance on my enemies. And because of that, none of you people can eat for the rest of the day. And so he's not thinking about the, the troops at all. He's only keeping about, uh, thinking about himself. And what should have been a day of amazing triumph and celebration has been absolutely ruined because of Saul's anger and his selfishness. Look at how the men here at first won't even answer him. He's their king. He's the general of their army. And he's talking and he's pointing and he's shouting this and that. And it says no one will even answer him. And when they finally do answer him, they simply say, do whatever you want. And they actually say that twice in this passage to Saul. And, and, and so we can see this great divide between Saul and his men and how he's not only drawing a line for this issue, but he's really separating himself out. And, and he's over here and all of you, who cares who you are? You're all over there. Verse 42, and then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son, uh, Jonathan. And Jonathan was selected and Saul commanded him, tell me what you did. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff I was carrying. I am ready to die. Saul declared to him, may God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? He accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground for he worked with God's help today. So the people redeemed Jonathan and he did not die. And Saul gave up the pursuit of the Philistines and the Philistines returned to their own territory. Uh, I wanna just talk about Saul the rest of the night, but we gotta look at the, his son. Okay, so look at Jonathan in this harrowing scene. Make no mistake about it, this would have been a tense and crazy situation. Imagine you're one of these soldiers, right? You're fighting this crazy battle that came out of nowhere. You had to pick up a sword off the ground to even get into the fight. You're about to fall over from hunger because you've been fighting it out for hours and hours that day and your king told you you weren't allowed to eat anything. You're so hungry, you probably were one of the people who defiled yourself before the Lord by eating meat with some blood still in it. Your king is raving about how you're a traitor. Then God stops speaking to you and the rest of the army. Now the king is enraged and talking about executing his own people on the spot, whoever it is, whoever it is. Even if it's own son, his own son, he says, a man who you have reverenced in your eyes, Jonathan, this great leader who you're probably thinking right now, man, why isn't this dude the king? But like, you're all excited. And amidst all of this stress, the lot then falls to Jonathan, the umum and the thumen come out and then like, oh no, can you imagine what the people 
would have thought when that lot was cast for Jonathan. And then what does Jonathan say? He says, I tasted a little honey. And rather than excuse anything or try to uh, back out of anything, he just says, I'm ready to die. That's crazy. Talk about like things that are not worthy of capital punishment, right? I was interested to learn today that aircraft hijacking is a capital offense in four places as far as I could find. China, India, and the United States, states of Georgia and Missouri. I don't know what's going on. That's quite a list. We have China, India, Georgia, Missouri. So no hijacking aircraft in any of those four places. They'll, they'll kill you. But anyway, Jonathan is, is going to be assessed capital punishment from the king for this. Now, Jonathan knows Saul is wrong to have made this decree. He says as much just a few verses earlier. And yet, he is this dedicated to the throne of Israel. We never see Jonathan trying to save his own life or trying to make his own life or his own future secure. He's completely abandoned and surrendered to the will of God and to the providence of God and to uh, just what, whatever the Lord wants to do in his life. And instead here, he acts as a living sacrifice. And isn't that what we're called to do as Christians? Jesus said, hey, those who seek to save their lives are gonna lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake are gonna save it. I want you to live as a living sacrifice day by day. And Jonathan, in his way, in this Old Testament sense, is doing that very thing. He trusts so much in the God of Israel and God's unstoppable plan for Israel. He trusts so much in the throne of Israel that he says, even though I know Saul is wrong, I'm that willing to obey the Lord because though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Jonathan's one of those kind of guys. And he lives as a living sacrifice with fearless honesty. He was honest to the troops back in the forest. He doesn't spin anything. He says, you know what, you guys? I see what's going on with you, how you are hungry. That's wrong. My dad's wrong for what he has done. He shouldn't have done that. He speaks to them honestly. But now here, he's also honest with his dad. He's like, yeah, man, it was me. I ate the honey and uh, I'll own it. He doesn't try to spin it there either. Because of his sterling courage and his uprightness, the troops rally to him and save him from being murdered by Saul that day. If only it were the last time Jonathan's dad almost killed him, but it's not. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20 now. We're going to see that the second verse is the same as the first. We saw the first part of this section when we examined Jonathan's friendship with David. It's when David hid in the field. Jonathan promised to go and find out whether Saul really did intend to kill him or not. We skipped the middle part where Jonathan and his dad have that face-to-face. -face. So let's pick it up now. This is in verse 24. At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat facing him, and Abner took his place beside Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonially unclean. Yes, that's it. He's unclean. However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty. And Saul asked his son, Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So now if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. 
That story's made up, if we remember from our time looking uh, at his friendship with David, and perhaps you're familiar with the story anyway, but theologians like to argue over whether these moments of deception that we sometimes see in the Old Testament are morally acceptable or not like the Hebrew midwives in Exodus or uh, Rahab hiding the spies where they lie. Is that okay? Is in this situation, is it not? Is it you know, a moral imperative to lie t- in order to save life? And people like to argue about that. Without going down that particular rabbit trail, I will say this in Jonathan's defense. It was David who thought up the fake story about Bethlehem, and he told Jonathan to say it. And at this point, Jonathan was living under the true assumption that David was God's anointed one. He had pledged himself accordingly. And so that's not necessarily an excuse, but it is the context uh, that he was saying, hey, he kept telling David, David, you're the anointed, you're going to be king, I'm going to be your second in command. Uh, You know, that's God's will. And he had said, hey, you hide here. I'll go find out if my dad really wants to kill you. And David said, here's what you do. You tell him this story. So that's the context. Having executed the plan, let's see how Saul responds. Verse 30, and Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and the disgrace of your mother? Every day, Jesse's son lives on the earth. You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered back, why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. Maybe you've had a lousy family Thanksgiving at one point. Uh, Every, most families have a story or two about that one Christmas dinner, right? Usually, they don't end in attempted murder. Usually, I'm, hey, I'm guessing that maybe one or two of you have a story almost, <laughs> almost to attempted murder, maybe like involuntary manslaughter, right? But this is beyond uncomfortable. I mean, this is a complete disaster, a complete breakdown, not only of, of this father-son relationship, but a complete breakdown in the leadership of Israel. I mean, this is a, a real, real big deal. Saul's words were harsh and vulgar. We see just how unhinged he's become. You know, he says some vile things about Jonathan's mother, and then he says right after that, Jonathan shouldn't be disgracing her. He says that he's so concerned about Jonathan's, you know, dynasty and your kingship isn't concerned, it isn't secure. And then he immediately tries to murder him himself. You know, the story of Saul is a story of a descent into madness as he turned his back on the Lord and went his own way. He uh, went into destruction and insanity. But Jonathan, for his part, was willing to face this monster down. Jonathan wasn't a dummy. He knew what his dad was capable of. He knew that his dad had tried to kill David before. He thought there was still hope at this point. Remember, he had told David, he's like, you're not going to die. My father would have told me, hey, let's figure this out. But he's not a dummy. And he was willing to face this monster down. And it wasn't the first time he had stood up to his dad and rebuked him publicly for his sinful conspiracy against David. But even more than that, the writer then gives us a window into his heart during this scene. Look at verse 34 of 1 Samuel 20. He got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. So his dad tries to murder him, and he was grieved because of Saul's shameful behavior toward David? 
Uh, Jonathan is just completely surrendered to God's will. He was so ready to honor God that he could not only hand over his throne and even lay down his life for the sake of someone else. His devotion for God completely filled his heart and filled his thoughts, so much so that when he was personally, vulgarly insulted and wronged by his own dad, that's not what bothered him. It was Saul's rejection of David and therefore God's will that bothered him. He said, that's what's really wrong in this situation. My dad won't honor God. He won't acknowledge the Lord's anointed. I don't even care that he tried to murder me just now. I don't even care that, you know, he said all these things. Of course he did care. Of course he was a man just like we're people. Of course that hurt him and that would have been just a terrible, painful thing to experience. But in his godliness and in his uprightness, what really bothered him was the fact that this king of Israel was not going God's way. He was rejecting God's will. But it even goes further than that. After all Saul said and did, after his friend is driven out of the city and spears go flying and all this stuff, here's what we read in verse 42. David left and Jonathan went into the city, meaning that Jonathan went back to his job supporting the king. That is courageous patience. That is sacrificial grace. This is a man that is faithful to the end in the worst job environment maybe in the history of the world. You know, Daniel had a really bad job environment. He had bad bosses. He had bad, you know, co-workers. He had a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I think Jonathan edges him out for a worst work environment because his dad was his boss and his dad was insane and his dad was trying to murder him. And yet he's like, yeah, I'm going back to work. I went out and told David, hey, you have to flee I'm going to serve you no matter what. Also, I'm going back to work because tomorrow is Monday and I have to go and serve the king. And so it's a, a remarkable thing. He's faithful to the end and he proves it in chapter 31 in the last time we see him. 1 Samuel 31 verses 1 and 2. The Philistines fought against Israel and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. In David's funeral lament in the next book, we're told that Jonathan never retreated. He fought valiantly till the end. After the battle, his body was taken by the Philistines along with those of his dad and his brothers. They were probably mutilated, Saul's was at least. And then they were all hung on display uh, disgracefully in the Philistine city of Beth Shan. After this, hearing about it, some brave men from Jabesh Gilead took courage and rescued the remains of Saul and his sons and gave them as proper a burial as they could. Few characters in the Old Testament were as true and noble and righteous as Jonathan. And few sacrificed so much in obedience to God. We read his story and we really can't help but wonder, okay, Lord, why not let this guy be the king? If, if you were sketching out pros and cons, right, and we didn't have any of the knowledge, or if you didn't know anything about the Bible and anything about the story of David or anything like that, and somebody said to you, I have two candidates for king after Saul. Here's one guy, Jonathan, and all of these things that we know about him. 
And here's another guy, David, who's a lot like Jonathan, except for that he also commits adultery. He also murders one of his friends. He also is a super bad dad. He also does a bunch of these other things. We would look at that and say, well, this dude over here, we want Jonathan to be the king because David is, is Jonathan with some vices problems. Now, of course, Jonathan wasn't sinless. It's just that they're not recorded and shown for us. But, but it does beg the question, why not Jonathan? And the, the fact of the matter is we don't know why God chose David and not this son of Saul. But we can be encouraged by the fact that you know who was fine with it? Jonathan was. He knew exactly what was going on. He was the one telling David, you are going to be king instead of me. I've given you my robe. I've given you my weapons. I've given you my place of prominence. I'm going to be your second in command. And so, and so he was fine with it because he had an understanding of God's heart. Like David, he was a man after God's heart. And in some moment of communion with the Lord, the Lord somehow got across to Jonathan where, and he said, it's not you. It's going to be your friend. And Jonathan said, yeah, thy will be done. And he went whole hog into that. And he, he was so excited about that. We see an echo of that in the life of David, right? David was like, I want so bad to build the temple for the Lord. And the Lord finally came to him and he said, it's not you. You're not going to do that. And David said, okay, Lord, your will be done. I'll do whatever I can to support what you're doing up to the line that you allow me to do it. Jonathan did that with his whole life. He gave up his throne. He gave up these opportunities happily for the sake of the Lord and for the Lord's anointed. So then the next question that comes to my mind at least is then, okay, great. I, I guess I can get behind Jonathan not being king, but David being king. But then Lord, why does he have to die? Why do you have to kill this guy? Wouldn't he have been a much better help to David than say Joab? one of the craziest people in the, in the whole Old Testament. Man, you want to do a character study, do one on Joab. That guy was nuts. He's murdering people. He's putting, man, the blunt end of, this, of like spear. Oh, no, that's Abner. Anyway, he's just killing people left and right and gutting them on the road and leaving them there to wallow around. And he's like, it's fine. I mean, so why can't Jonathan be David's general? Why can't he help David? That's what he wanted to do. And the Lord said, no, he may have been a, a, a better help in many ways, but in many other ways, it was a very gracious thing that God allowed Jonathan to die when he did. Why? For one thing, it would be important for the nation that the people knew that God and God alone gave David the throne. It wasn't Jonathan that was giving David the throne. It was David. Had Jonathan survived, there would always be a faction of people that said, yeah, but, but he gave you the throne. It's really his if he wants it. And so that wouldn't have been good for the nation. For another thing, we see the division that did happen in Israel when Saul's son Ishbosheth was installed in, as king in place of his father in 2 Samuel. After this battle and everything shakes out, the, you know, Abner says, All right, well, you know what? Saul's last surviving son, Ishbosheth, he's king now. He's not set up to be king. He's not a warrior or anything like that, but he's king now. And there's this great division and there's war between the people of God. Now imagine how much worse it would have been the struggle and the bloodshed 
if a valiant, beloved hero like Jonathan had been left alive. It would have been him. Jonathan was the firstborn son and, and the tribe of Benjamin and the, the leadership there would have said, yeah, Jonathan is king, whether anyone wants to say it or not. And it would have been much worse for the nation in that regard as well. Jonathan's death also spared him the trial of fighting against his own family, specifically Ishbosheth and other members when David did come to the throne. So let's say Jonathan survived and he says, hey, I'm not going to be king. I'm David's second in command. Clearly, the leaders of Benjamin and the elders of Israel still would have said, okay, well, but Ishbosheth is the king now. And now Jonathan would have had to go to war with his own flesh and blood. It would have been a terrible thing for him to endure. And so we can't know the mind of God, but those are some potential graces that he was able to uh, avoid because he died here in chapter 31. Jonathan's story is a remarkable one, but it was full of difficulty and ended in tragedy of someone else's making. But he was a man faithful to the end, full of godliness and grace and spiritual power. I've been closing our looks at his life by highlighting ways that Jonathan's story prefigured the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see some still in our passages this evening. Like Jonathan, Jesus Christ saw the vain traditions of men as being burdensome to people. When Jonathan heard about Saul's oath, his weird command, he said, you know what? My father has troubled the people. Very similar to how Jesus looked at the commands and instructions from the Pharisees and the ruling religious leaders in Israel during his time. Like Jonathan, Jesus was willing to submit to the will of the Father, even if that meant death. Like Jonathan, Jesus spoke with courageous honesty to those around him, whether they were friendly to him or antagonistic to him. Of course, like Jonathan, Jesus Christ laid down his life for undeserving, unworthy people. If we were Jonathan's advisors, we would have told him to abandon his father. We would have said, your father's not worth fighting for. Your father's not worth defending. Your father is a lost cause. Get away from him. He's radioactive. Get over to David's team and everything will be okay. That's what we would have told him to do. And yet Jonathan stayed the course, counting the cost, willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of another, even though that other person was completely undeserving and unworthy. While we were yet sinners, though we were at war with God, Christ died for us. There's one more glimmer of in this type Jonathan, whose name means the gift of Jehovah, died on Mount Gilboa. Many biblical resources point out that the name Gilboa means that it was a place of bubbling water or fountain of water. When the prince laid down his life, a fountain flowed. The great son of the king lived a life of sacrifice so that another person could be glorified. And so he's such a great type to us of Jesus Christ because the Prince of Peace laid down his life for us so that we can now follow him into fullness of victory. And so let's do so with grace and devotion, honesty and integrity, confidence and trust, and so follow Jonathan in our walk with the Lord. Amen?